This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You know, I feel quite strongly that in the next couple of years, we'll start seeing you know, our password dependencies go down dramatically. Uh, to the point where, you know, in several years more, this won't be part of our daily lives. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're going to talk about something that most people deal with every day of the week, every week of the year, every year of their lives. Passwords. Those pesky little combinations have become ubiquitous, and oh boy, are they frustrating. You mistype them, have to update them constantly, and the requirements, numbers, capitalized letters, special characters, are always so complicated, making them harder and harder to remember. It's kind of a can't-live-with-them, can't-live-without-them situation. But maybe that's about to change. It may be time to get rid of that long list of passwords you maybe have hidden in a safe. Apple, Google, and Microsoft working to get rid of passwords so you can log in to accounts without one. Back in May, news broke that Microsoft, Google, and Apple are all going to use new password technology. It allows your phone or computer to sign into all of your online accounts automatically. In other words, you sign into your device and then you're logged into everything from your email to Netflix to your MarketWatch subscription. Today, we're going to look at what happens if passwords go away, when we can expect that change, and if we're going to miss anything about them. But first, we're going to travel back to the birth of the password. We live at a time when most of the people who invented ideas in computer security are still alive. Many are retired. And so it's a golden age if you want to write about history. That's Fred Schneider. He's a professor of computer science at Cornell University. Schneider's writing a textbook about computer security, and as part of that project, he's been diving into the history of the password. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. Passwords predate the computer. They've been around forever. They're described in the biblical book of Judges. And one of the most famous passwords, Open Sesame, has been around since 1001 Nights was written in the early 1700s. But the idea to create a computer password came about in 1964. Computer security got its start in the 60s because that's when people started using computers in a shared way. In the United States, The earliest time-sharing systems were built at MIT. At consoles like this one, located in laboratories and offices throughout New England, hundreds of people will one day be able to use tomorrow's computer simultaneously. Time-sharing technology was a major development in computer systems. It meant that several people could work at the same central computer at the same time. 
This man has been using the computer to solve a relatively simple mathematical problem. And while he thinks about what he wants to do next, the computer is busy working on someone else's problem. But with that whole sharing thing came a new problem. What if there was something you didn't want to share? I'd like to have you meet Dr. Fernando J. Corbato, who's the associate director of this center. Dr. Corbato? Enter Dr. Fernando Corbato from MIT. He's credited with helping deploy the first known computer password. Corbateau passed away a few years ago, but in a previous interview with the Wall Street Journal, he explained that they wanted to, quote, avoid people needlessly nosing around in everybody's files. In the same interview, Corbateau said that as soon as they had secured the computer by adding on passwords, it was basically hacked into. Someone at the lab managed to steal someone else's password in order to log more time on the computer, since there was a four-hour limit. And so, from the moment the security measure was invented, it was compromised. And that's really been the story of the password ever since. In theory, authenticating someone because they know a secret sounds great. In practice, it turns out there are ways to learn the secret that we didn't realize. Over the following decades, computing spread and developed. More and more people needed to authenticate themselves to more and more systems. That meant more passwords and more problems. Hackers invented ways to do brute force attacks. That's when you run a ton of password combinations through the system until you hit bingo. As computers got faster, it was possible to do this kind of brute force checking of a potential password from larger and larger files. And the number of words in the dictionary isn't all that big. So requiring somebody to pick a long password, which in theory would require many, many guesses, was not that effective because people wouldn't pick random sequences. They would pick words in the dictionary and you just had to check every word in the dictionary. Computer security scientists came up with new solutions like encrypting passwords. Later, they started hashing them. In the simplest terms, that means storing a new, random, and encrypted version of the password instead of the actual password. And so there was this game of cat and mouse as system builders tried to protect the password file in stronger ways, and attackers figured out ways to, to break that. Phishing was developed. That's when you're made to believe a website is authentic and you put in your credentials only to realize later that it was all a scheme to steal your password. Now this has all been made worse by the many data breaches we've seen over recent years. Some breaking news just these past few minutes. Facebook is reporting a security issue that's affected some 50 million accounts. This is one of the largest data breaches in history. It happened at Equifax, the company that tracks all your credit cards and mortgages to determine your credit score. You may have received an email from Yahoo recently informing you Yahoo was the target of a massive security breach affecting a billion users. It was the biggest hack of one company users ever, and it's a big deal because of the information that we believe the hackers have obtained, user names, phone numbers, email addresses, dates of a recent report from the Identity Theft Resource Center said that there were more than 1,800 data breaches last year. Those breaches impacted close to 300 million people. Another report from IBM looked into the costs for over 500 recent data breaches. They found that the average cost per company was more than $4 million. In other words, 
If you've received an alert that your email, password, or other personal information was in a data breach, you're not alone. I reckon you've got a 50-50 chance, and the chance increases the longer you've had it and the more things you sign up to. That's Troy Hunt. He's a regional director for Microsoft and runs the website, Have I Been Pwned? It's a place where users put in their email addresses or phone numbers to see if they've been leaked in data breaches. So Charles, do you want to log on and see if we've been pwned? Okay, I'm going to check one of my email addresses. All right, I'm going to do the same. I'm going in and I want to see what happens here. I'm a little scared, but I'm going to see what happens here. It says, oh no, I've been pwned. So I come up in one data breach. Oh my God, I come up in 27 data breaches. 27 data breaches? I mean, I'm always getting these notifications, but that's a lot. This is not good. I'm actually surprised that it's only one. Stephanie, why don't you take the next few lines? I've got to go look into this and figure out what the heck is going on. Now, breaches often leak passwords too. That's not a huge deal if you use a different password for every one of your accounts, but Hunt says the trouble is you probably don't. You'd simply need too many passwords. I mean, think about how many accounts you have at the moment. So let's say for the sake of simplicity, you've got 100 accounts. And if you don't think you have 100 accounts, you do. Hackers obtain email addresses or other personal information from these breaches. In turn, that can be used in a phishing attack. Or they might resell the data. There's a whole hidden economy of that on hacker forums and the dark web. Well, I mean, let's, let's think about something like Netflix. How do you log into Netflix? You've got an email address and you've got a password. Now, if you've used that same email address and password somewhere else, and then that's had a data breach and someone now has that, hey, Netflix is a really popular service. That's the sort of place that people then go and try to log into your account with. Go to Twitter and search for Netflix hacked and see how many people are making comments along the lines of, hey, could the Korean family that's just changed the language on my Netflix, (laughs) please put my language back to English. To keep the bad guys out, many websites now use what's called two-factor authentication. That's when your phone asks for a password and then prompts you to also verify your identity via your device. There are also more people using password managers. That's a program that allows users to generate and handle passwords automatically. All you need is to log into the password manager itself. But ironically, all these somewhat recent innovations tie back into the use of passwords one way or another. And that brings us back to where we started, namely to the recent news about how the major internet browsers are moving towards a password-free future. I feel quite strongly that in the next couple of years, we'll start seeing our password dependencies go down dramatically uh, to the point where you know, in several years more, this won't be part of our daily lives. That's Andrew Shekiar. He's the executive director and CMO of Fido Alliance, an industry group that works with 250 companies to create open standards. That means building tech that any developer can participate in. They also work towards stronger authentication. So simply put, we're trying to reduce reliance on passwords. Working with Fido Alliance, Apple, Google, and Microsoft have announced that they're all backing a new sign-on technology where your phone or computer signs you into all your online accounts automatically. And once you're signed in on one device, you'll also automatically be signed in on your other devices. The technology is called a passkey, 
The idea is that when you unlock your phone using face detection, fingerprint recognition, or a PIN, you've proven who you are. So you're also able to log into other apps and websites without any prompts. In some cases, you won't even need a password to set up a new account. Andrew Shekiar believes this will become more common over time as more websites update their systems to use the passkey technology. So what we want to get to is this point where we're actually taking passwords off of servers. And I think you know, that's what we're going to you know, be able to move towards over the next several years. Critics say that there could be a negative from handing over your digital passkeys to tech giants like Apple, Microsoft, and Google. It makes it easier to get trapped inside their respective ecosystems. Another concern? What if someone steals your phone? The key thing that we're doing is allowing for a local authentication. So it could be a thumb. It could be a face scan. It could be, so it could be a biometric. It can also be a PIN. The four-digit PIN is more secure than the most complex password because that four-digit PIN is not going over the network. The massive data breaches we've been reading about for far too long, these are remote attacks where hundreds of millions of accounts are taken over. Right? We're trying to stop those. It's hard to stop the bad guy with a gun to your head scenario, and that's not really our use case. Stopping the remote attacker is. No password stored on servers means no place for hackers to break into. But do we lose anything if we lose passwords? That's after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we heard about emerging technology that could make us less reliant on passwords. But there's more to passwords than the purely technical security aspects. If you look at people's cubicles in a large office building, you know, it's kind of an impersonal workspace. And well, you see a lot of people who have a, a picture of their spouse or their children at their desk. It's a reminder that that's why they're there and that's the important thing in life. And people do the same with passwords. That's Joseph Bonneau, an assistant professor at NYU who teaches computer science. Bonneau has studied many of the security breaches we talked about a moment ago. Using that rich database, he has been able to look into what kind of passwords people chose. I started looking at it purely from a security point of view. How secure are these things? How difficult are they to guess? But I spent a lot of time working with the data, and it was interesting to poke around and look at different passwords people chose. Overall, Bonneau says that while a minority of passwords were tied to hateful or negative ideas, most of them were more reassuring. One of the most common things is something about a person that they love. There's a lot of prayers. There's a lot of affirmation. And a lot of people use their password as a daily way to remember something that they really want. People have a lot of passwords that are affirmative sayings like that. In Bonneau's study of passwords, he found that love beat out hate nearly 200 times. I think we all 
rightfully think of passwords as this purely negative requirement. And I kind of had this thought that if you turn it upside down, there's an interesting underside story about when people break the rules and they create passwords that are sentimental and memorable and personal, those are not negative things. That's Ian Urbina, a DC-based journalist. I spent 20 years at the New York Times during investigative, and now I run my own journalism nonprofit organization called the Outlaw Ocean Project. When Urbina was at the Times, he wrote a story called The Secret Life of Passwords. And when researching it, he spoke with a lot of people about a lot of passwords. And by a lot, I mean a lot. A number that would make security specialists, you know, break out in hives. I think hundreds, if not thousands, just because I did this little experiment for, you know, four or five years straight where I had a little notebook and I just collected them and asked whenever I was in any setting where you needed an icebreaker, oddball conversation topic. So, yeah, I collected a lot of passwords. Urbina says it started with an anthropological treasure hunt of what he dubbed keepsakes, That's the subset of passwords that have a deeper meaning to them, often tied to memories, feelings, people, all the things we're usually told not to put in our passwords. It's a tchotchke that you keep, and it doesn't make sense to folks who don't know the story behind it. It's like a random piece of junk, probably, to any outside observer. But to you, it's got this special endowed worth. He found that a password could be the starting point of a great story with much bigger implications. Questions like, what does this tell us about human nature and human psychology? Why do we want to do this, even if it's irrational and it goes against our own security self-interest? Like the time when Urbina was stuck on a tarmac next to a man who wore an expensive suit and watch. The man told him he still used the password 1060, his less than desirable SAT score. The password served to remind him of how far he had come, in spite of his score. It turned out Urbina's own wife also had a password story. Her dad, who Urbina describes as a big macho guy, had a severe stutter. He learned as a boy that if he sang something instead of saying it, he could avoid the stutter. And he would practice this phenomena by reciting his home address, his boyhood address, which is 4622 South 28th West Avenue. And he would just sort of say that often in this song sort of way. And it stuck both for its poignancy, you know, you think of your parents as superheroes. My wife growing up saw her father as just that and that he was vulnerable and that he was singing to be able to finish a sentence and, you know, summed up a lot about the complicated outlook on your own parent. And so she sort of adopted that 4622 into her subsequent passwords because it just had this rich memory. During his reporting, Urbina met a man, Tim, who at the time was 45 years old. He told me that his password tied to this camp that he went to for multiple summers. And it's a place where he had really beautiful memories and was sexually abused and thus horrible memories. In so many ways, it didn't make sense. You know, number one, that he would tell me. Number two, the ambivalence embedded in the code of pain and nostalgia all in one. And also the sort of, he had not told anyone about the sexual abuse other than his therapist. 
not even his wife, when he told me. And I just was blown away by the sheer tabletop fusion of how much energy was packed into this tiny little code. Revealing his password led Tim to open up about his past. Eventually, he started connecting with others who said they had also suffered abuse at the camp. Urbina says the result was that several of the students filed a lawsuit against the school. But it all started with this password and him putting this emotion into this code and then opening it up to someone. That, to me, sums up the sheer power of these passwords. So what is it about passwords that can sometimes make them so powerful? So my theory on that is it's the discovery of a weird portal, an emotional portal. It's like you go into your closet in the house you just bought and you find this little door in the back of it and suddenly you're in Narnia. And no one had ever knocked on the right door and I just got lucky and did and opened Sesame. The reason it serves as a portal, I think, is because a lot of thought confidential thought, secret thought, private thought had gone into the crafting of the code. They chose it for its emotional valence because it was memorable and had this huge backstory. Urbina says he understands why a lot of people are frustrated with passwords and eager for them to be a thing of the past. Whenever I can use the facial recognition software on my iPhone and such or the fingerprint, I like using them. But I haven't given up my one or two sentimental ones. And for low stakes accounts that I don't mind if they get hacked, I still use them because I remember them and I don't know, I just don't want to give them up. It's hard to say when Urbina will have to give up those passwords and if that day will ever come. Have I Been Pwned's Troy Hunt says he thinks passwords will be around for the foreseeable future in spite of technological innovation. We're augmenting them and we're decreasing the dependency on them, but we're not getting rid of them. Passwords are interesting because they're the the security construct which everybody understands. And this is why they're still around. Everybody knows how to use a password, whether it's my kids or my parents or my non-technical friends. And I almost feel like sometimes the password gets a bad rap. You know, people are a bit negative about the password. It does have this enormously powerful thing going for it, which is this global understanding and global adoption. But it's also fraught with problems, and we have much better technical solutions. But the problem is, is that most other alternatives we have rely on people using something that they're not familiar with, changing their behavior. Even if we do manage to kill it off one day, Ian Urbina isn't too sentimental on behalf of the password using art and especially using art on things that are burdensome that's pretty uniquely human and kind of cool and i don't think that's going anywhere we'll just keep doing it and converting frustrating things into comedy converting tedious things into beauty that's just something we do and i think it's a testament of one of the things that makes us special Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Fred Schneider, Troy Hunt, Ian Urbina, and Joseph Bonneau. 
To learn more about innovations in biometric authentication and online security, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Katie Ferguson and Meta Lutzhoft. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Christy Taiwa Makanjula provided editing help. From Best Case Studios, Hannah Leibowitz Lockhart is the associate producer, and Adam Pincus is the executive producer. Jeremy Binks is our news editor, and Tim Roston is the executive editor for MarketWatch. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.